Hi, Mike Gibson and Wayne Batchelor coming to you live from TCT 2016. Wayne, this is a unique experience. Uh, sadly, I have to say, in most of our trials, three quarters of the patients are always men, mm -hmm. so we have gross underrepresentation of women, even worse representation of uh, minorities, maybe Correct. 5% to 10% in all of our studies. Right. You did something that is just absolutely spectacular. You did a trial where you actually excluded white men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was great. Uh, so, but you used them as historical controls, but then yes. you enriched for minorities and women. So right. Tell us a little bit about the platinum diversity study. Well, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's been a challenge because for several decades, despite all sorts of efforts from the NIH and from the FDA and policies and recommendations to include minorities and women in trials, we really haven't seen the, the uh, an adequate uh, degree of enrollment and in these And why is groups. that? Why, why can't we get women and minorities in our it's studies? Excellent, complicated question, that which would require about an hour to answer, but I think there are a number of factors. There are patient-related factors, there are physician factors, there are institutional factors, but the bottom line is there's this tremendous inception bias into clinical trials. It takes a lot mm. of steps to land in the right hospital, uh, to be seen by the right physician who has research, who, and then who approaches you, you consent, you get enrolled. I mean, there are multiple steps So you can go that. wrong in so many in of those so steps. In so many of those steps. And so, uh, yeah. you know, there are, it's a com complex question with a complex answer, but I think all the, w all the way from disease recognition to enrollment, there are impediments to uh, being in a clinical trial as, as a minority and in, to some degree uh, for women. So what we intended to do here was to get a sample size that was large enough, enough for us to really study the outcomes. When you think about it, if we're going to be applying these um, devices in, across the board in, in the entire community, we have to make sure that we're, our clinical trials represent that community, and yeah, the reality absolutely. is it, it thus far really hasn't. So you know, instead of just repeating the same old mistakes and just having an underpowered study, we did what was called an enriched cohort study. So we, for 10 months, we just enrolled women and minorities exclusively. Mm -hmm. Now, we did not exclude men from the trial because we had a pooled analysis where we drew the outcomes from the Promise Element uh, Plus post-approval study. This has been already published by Ken Seri and, um, and that group. Uh, just a few months ago, and so we had all those outcomes, which was an all-comers study, which was dominated by um, white sure, men. as usual. So we had uh, independent clinical events committee uh, evaluation of all outcomes, primary, secondary, and then we did some adjustment for imbalances and um, baseline characteristics some, through some multivariate modeling and, and came up with our conclusions. And w were these the same sites? No, they were not. They were not the same Excellent sites. question. Yeah. So, ironically, we ended up with 52 sites from the Promise Element and 52 sites for the Platinum Diversity Cohort, but they were not all the same sites. We actually made a specific effort to go to sites that had access to a more enriched population I in terms see. of a more diverse population. And typically it's about a half a patient per site per month in, in yes. these trials. How quickly could you enroll in these other centers, you, focusing just on minorities and yeah. women? Well, one of the fascinating observations from this was how dedicated the sites were to this, this study. So they want to do it. They wanted to do it, and right. what we found, we ended the study six months early. Wow. So wow. the projected time frame was February 2016, and we, we finished um, basically in August. So, so they're we were, there, we just haven't figured out how to enroll them. How to enroll them. And mm -hmm. I, so I think there, that's a whole other discussion, but I think you have to be, number one, uh, have the right sites selected so that right. you're, the, the population that you 
uh, enroll in the clinical trials representative. That's one thing, site selection is key. But also, if you are used to doing clinical research and approaching minorities and women, you understand how to make, ensure that, because you know, the way that you approach uh, a consent form might be a little bit different depending sure. on the person you're approaching. And what did you find? Well, we found that, first of all, the, the primary outcome that we studied was death, myocardial infarction, and target vessel revascularization. That primary endpoint was fairly similar between white men, um, minorities, and women. Uh, we saw that that occurred 7.6% of the time in white men, 8.6% in women, and 9.6% in minorities. The p-value on that was 0.08. There was a slight trend in the minority side, but overall, the outcomes were very similar. But when we drilled down to the pre-specified secondary endpoints, some of the thrombotic endpoints, in particular, uh, myocardial infarction and death and MI, those two endpoints were seen more commonly in uh, minorities, wow. and uh, death and MI was also experienced more commonly in women. And ev this persisted even after adjustment for using our multivariable model for the baseline differences in characteristics. And was that MI signal driven by stent thrombosis? No, it wasn't. No? The stent oh. performed well, and oh. I think the message from this study is device failure was very similar. Stent thrombosis was not significantly different. It was very rare in all groups. Um, there was a slight numeric difference, but not close to being statistically significant. Obviously, we didn't have power to really address stent thrombosis. But more importantly, uh, target vessel revascularization was actually higher in white men, slightly numerically, hmm. but was really not statistically different in the three groups. Hmm. So I think the stent performed well. Hmm. The TVR rates were very low, so but we were seeing disease, other events. Uh, the underlying disease is more rapidly progressive in yeah. the women and the minorities. Exactly, so. and that may yeah. relate to some of the differences and characteristics that they, you know, they arrived with. So, for example, women were a little bit older. Mm -hmm. uh, women and minorities had a higher rate of hypertension, renal disease, and diabetes. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, um, white men were more likely to present with an acute coronary syndrome and mm -hmm. have thrombus on their angiograms. Uh, minorities were more likely to have uh, severe calcification. Reference vessel diameter was a little bit bigger for men, um, for white men than uh, minorities and women. And um, the minority cohort had uh, slightly longer lesions. So all these things kind of may play a role. What we've been discovering is that women tend to have eroded plaque rather than ruptured plaque. Yes. And so a difference in how you have a heart attack between men and women. Right. Yeah. So, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Sure. I think so you've got a lot of other things. Like you've got social economic stuff to look absolutely. at, medical compliance to look at, yes. all that in addition. Have you taken any peeks at that? Yeah, so on the medical compliance side, there were, there were statistically significant but numerically very small differences in compliance. For example, mm. for dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, adherence was 87% for white men, 85% for women, and 84% for um, minorities. You know, statistically significant because we had large numbers, yeah, but right. numerically very small and probably not right. a big impact on outcome. Um, when you uh, uh, look at socioeconomic status, I think that's going to be really interesting. And luckily, uh, we did collect a, a wealth of socioeconomic data at baseline in the women and minority cohort. So we have information on um, uh, education achieved, income, life situation, body mass index, exercise habits, language concordance and discordance mm. between the patient and the, uh, and the treating physician um, on the, sort of on the Hispanic uh, side. And we have distance to uh, the hospital and various other factors that we'll be looking at. How about distance to food? You know, yes. are they in food deserts, these yeah. poor people? You know, I mean, well, I'd say that's an excellent question. I think yeah. the bottom line is our health status is dependent on many factors. Right. Some of those are sort of 
pharmacology driven and biology driven, but some of them are honestly socially driven and right. economically driven. Right. And to get the a bit, uh, to get the a broad uh, perspective of what's happening, you really have to cut through all these different um, uh, parameters. Right. Well, there's a great study in Durham uh, where they use mapping to see you know how far are you from the pharmacy? Yes. How far are you from your social network of the church? Yes. How far are you from fresh organic food, yes. and you know, are you in proximity to a food desert? Yes. Uh, so you know, all these things really come into play. It's fascinating. They really do. Well, congratulations. Thrilled to see, uh, thrilled to see you guys really trying to enrich uh, for these grossly underrepresented populations in uh, sharing this with us. Thanks Great. so much. Thanks, Mike. And thanks to all of you for joining us here live from TCT 2016. Yeah. That was really a fantastic.